There is one story that stands out as the greatest story ever told. In this story, you and I aren't just made to feel like participants, we are characters within the story. We are the characters, our world is the setting, and the plot is broken down into five acts. Act one, creation. Act two, rebellion. Act three, rescue. Act four, communion. Act five, celebration. The conflict occurs in the first act, the resolution is introduced in act three, and continues through the present and into the future. The greatest story ever told is the story of God and us. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Bill Altman, and I've been the small groups pastor here at Crossroads for the last six years or so, and just want to say hello to you all. It's good to be together. Um, Hello to those of you who are with us from our West Campus or who are watching online. Uh, We're glad that you're with us as well. Now, before we jump in, I want to remind you of uh, next week's congregational meeting that is for the purpose of affirming our budget for the upcoming fiscal year. This will happen at both of our campuses next weekend after all of the weekend services. If you'd like to prepare for that by looking at the budget report, you can find that at cccgo.com forward slash give. Now, today we're going to be continuing uh, the story of God and us by looking at what happens in Genesis chapter 3. You might want to turn there right now, um, but we'll be looking at that here in a couple of minutes. Now, one of the truths behind this series is the idea that we all have a story. Every person who's ever breathed on this planet has a story. My story began at Hubbard Memorial Hospital in a little town in Michigan. And when I was growing up, my family had this tradition. Every year on the night before our birthday, my mom would take whichever kid was having the birthday aside and she would tell us our story. She would tell us uh, how she first learned that she was pregnant and what she thought when she, when she got that news and what was going on in, in uh, my parents' lives and in the world uh, during those months leading up to our birth and especially focusing on those last couple of weeks, what she was thinking and feeling, anticipating our arrival and the trip to the hospital and who the doctor was and, and all of those details she would tell us and what she, what she saw when she first looked into our little angelic faces. And uh, so every year on January 7th, my mom would say to me at some point, you ready to hear your story? And off we'd go to a quiet room and, and she would tell me my story. And when I was in my 20s, I asked her to write that down because I always wanted to have my story with me. And my wife has continued this tradition with our three kids telling the stories. We all of us have a story. And I think a lot of us spend a big part of our lives just trying to figure out what does it all mean? What does is, what is our stories mean? How was I influenced by the family that I was raised in or the place that I grew up or the time that I grew up? And uh, we, we know the power of story when we ask these questions. Maybe we say, I want to give my family a different story than the one that I grew up with. I want my marriage to be different or the way I relate to my kids to be different or the way that I spend my time. And so the power of story has a way of, of just rising up in our lives. We also know the, the power of story when we, maybe we see a new actor or we think about someone from history and we wanna know a little bit more about their lives. And so we go to that, that place where we find all human knowledge, Wikipedia. And if you're like me, we go to that early life section first, right? 
because we want to find out how did they grow up? What, what is it about their childhood that explains the way that they're living today or the life that they led back in some historical period? We want to know what those stories are. A few months ago, um, while she was reflecting on the recent death of several celebrities, deaths that involved, by the way, um, a mostly hidden st- struggle with depression, the writer Brene Brown was reflecting on this in her blog. Listen to what she says. She said, everyone has a story that will break your heart. And if you're really paying attention, most people have a story that will bring you to your knees. And so this morning, we are in the part of the story that will break our hearts and bring us to our knees. And so um, I just want to warn you up front, this is not a happy morning, okay? Last week, happy. Next week, happy. This week, I'm kind of sorry, okay? So if you came this morning expecting something light and uplifting and encouraging, wrong week. (laughs) We'll get there next week. But uh, before we jump into the part where things break down, the part of the, uh, where the rebellion shows up in the story, I want us to really live for a few minutes in what happened in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 before we move on to chapter 3. Because we need to, I think, in order for us to feel the weight of what is about to be lost, we need to live in how good it really was, what, what was lost in those moments. So last week, we were in a really, really good place. God created the universe, the heavens and the earth, and he filled the, the, the earth with everything necessary for our joy and our happiness and our survival. And as, as we saw how God spoke things into existence, we get this idea that, that he's just like this artist who takes great joy in creating. And so he doesn't just create the bare minimum that we would need for survival. Like he just shows creativity in plants and, and in fruit and berries and bushes and flowers and all kinds of good things, uh, more than what we need to survive. And when God created all of that stuff, Venus flytraps and sequoia trees and orchids, uh, he said, very good. And all of that resulted from him saying, let the land produce vegetation. And when he said those words, let there be lights in the sky, he didn't just stop with our solar system with its eight planets, or maybe nine, depending on where you come down with the whole Pluto thing. Um, He didn't didn't create just one galaxy in one Milky Way with its four billion stars. He created two trillion Milky Ways. And what we know, mostly due to the Hubble telescope, is that the, the, the current estimate of the number of stars in the universe right now is a number with 20 zeros behind it. Like, I can't even conceive of that number, but it's something like 10 million stars for every single cell in your body. God didn't have to do it that way. Psalm 41 says this, that God has numbered the stars and he's given them each a name. And so if you've ever wondered, why did God create in the first place? Maybe you've asked that question. I have to think that maybe the amazing abundance and creativity in the world that he created for us and the universe that he put us in gives us part of the answer. And so I want to give you, I think, my best answer to that question. Why did God create in the first place? And I have to warn you, especially if this is your first time here, we're we're about to slide into some really deep theology, all right? And so if you're a note taker, time to get ready. Okay, we set... Here's the reason, because he wanted to. 
I think that's the only thing that makes sense because God took great joy in creating. It's like he's an artist, a designer, an engineer who just, who just throws out thing after thing after thing. And he doesn't stop with just the bare minimum. He goes all out for, for us. He does it because he wanted to. And so he creates eagles and hummingbirds and the chongololo that crawls across the African floor with its 500 feet. And he creates the green basculus lizard. You've probably seen that before. It's the one that stands up and runs on its hind legs like a crazy person. And because it can do that across water, you can probably guess at its nickname, the Jesus Christ lizard. <laughs> but he does all of this for us. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to create um, this universe with all of the, with quasars and black holes and comets. He didn't have to create bananas and watermelons and buffalo berries. He could have stopped with one solar system, but he didn't. You know, he could have plopped us down into a world without coffee and we never would have known the difference. But he didn't because he is a good God <laughs> who knows how to give gifts to his people. Listen to what the last book of the Bible says. You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. It says, by your will. That could, that could be translated by your pleasure, by your joy, because you wanted to do it. And so that's where our story ended last week. God creates Adam and Eve, man and woman, and puts them in a perfect creation, sets them down in this beautiful garden, and he says to Adam, I want you to take care of this. And Adam looks around and he says, okay. And he says to the couple, be fruitful and multiply. And they look at each other and say, okay. And everything was good. There was no sadness, no regret, no sickness, no worry about tomorrow, no regrets at all. And so I want you to hear this that your story has a really good beginning, that your story does not begin in sin, it doesn't begin in brokenness, that God created you because he wanted you to be here and on the day of your birth, God said with joy, very good. That's where our stories begin. I think sometimes we get some hints of just how good things were, just, just some hints of that. I don't know if you have a happy place, <laughs> A place that you like to go, maybe a, a, a place where you like to take walks or uh, vacation. Maybe your happy place is uh, doing something like a, like a sport or a hobby or some activity. Maybe it's just being with good friends or your family. That's your happy place, place is being with those special people in your lives. I don't know what it is like for you, what that place is for you. But for me, for a long time, my happy place has been camping. I'm not seeing very many nods out there. Um, maybe there's a couple of you. Most of you are probably thinking, okay, Bill, isn't, isn't camping just like life, except harder? <laughs> um, but for me, that's, that's the place where I, I really, um, where things just feel like they all come together and things are right with the world. A couple of years ago, my youngest son and I built a canoe. And uh, after we had spent about 80 or 90 hours building this canoe, we took it out to a lake to make sure it would float, a, a very shallow lake, by the way. Um, and when we, when we proved that it was water-worthy, sea-worthy, we took it to a, a river in Montana and took a 150-mile trip down that river. And I have to tell you, those were some of the best eight or nine days of my whole life. It was just stunningly beautiful. Uh, the things that we saw, the animals we saw, it was just great. We were totally out of cell service. 
Um, so that was also a plus. We had our dog, our border collie was with us, and we ate meat, lots and lots of meat. It was a perfect week. And um, it was one of those times where maybe, you've, maybe you can relate to this, where, where you just like want to soak it in. And you sort of like sit in that moment and say, I don't want to forget what this is like. I don't want to forget what the feel of the breeze is like here floating down this river. I don't want to forget the sound of the water. It was just perfect. And, and maybe if you've been in a place like that, doing something that you really love and maybe more importantly, doing it with someone that you really, really love and care about, you've gotten a little bit of a glimpse of what was lost, a little bit of a taste of just how good things could have been. But every now and then something happens that kind of pulls us back into the reality, right? Every now and then the fog lifts, the curtain is pulled back. The death of a child, cancer, some kind of loss, a divorce. And we're right back in there and we understand now that things are kind of broken. On the second to the last day of our uh, trip down the river, uh, we were paddling and it was lunchtime so we kind of paddled over to the shore to make lunch, and we noticed that something was really wrong with Skye, our border collie. Her face was all swollen. She was, she was breathing really heavily, was just panting super fast, uh, like she couldn't get a breath, and, uh, and we just knew something was wrong with her. But I want to show you what she looked like before. This was a couple of days before. That, that is a happy dog in a happy place, right? Here's what she looked like then. Yeah, isn't that awful? And when we noticed there were a couple of beads of blood on the top of her nose, we thought, okay, this guy's gotten bitten by something and this could be it for her. So the next day when we ended our trip at a state park along the river where we, we had planned to, um, to pull out of the water, um, we took Skye to the ranger there and she took a look at her and said, you know what, your dog's been bit by a rattlesnake. And she, uh, she grew up on a, and lived on a ranch nearby. She'd seen it a bunch of times. But she did say that if your dog made it through the night and isn't getting worse, then she, there's a good chance she'll make it. Which I have to tell you, she was fine this morning. The story has a happy ending. But the night in the tent, the night before, in the darkness of the tent, when we had done everything that we knew how to do, completely out of the range of any kind of help, no one else around, dog panting and wheezing, I just prayed, God, don't let this trip be about the death of our dog. <laughs> you know, this trip that has been everything we dreamed and planned and hoped for up to this point. Don't let the number one thing we remember be the loss of our dog. I mean, saying goodbye to her would be terrible on any day, but set in against what we were experiencing, it would just be a tragedy. And so the reason this morning I want us to start in that good place by just remembering the goodness of God, um, the reason is because we need to understand what is about to be lost. We need to understand the devastation of what happens next. So look at uh, Genesis chapter one, or Genesis chapter three rather, verse one in your Bibles. We're gonna read the first five verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may, eat from, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit 
from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely, surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, in the previous chapter, Adam, uh, or God told Adam and Eve, you can eat from all the trees in the garden. That one, that one, these over there, you can eat from any of them. And so his, his command to them was an, was an opening for freedom. Like he gave them so much. He said, you can eat from all of these things. All this abundance is yours. And then he puts that one tree in the middle of the garden and says, but that one you can't touch. And I don't know if you've ever, does anybody have a problem with that? Like everything was going so well. Why did God put that tree there in the first place? Well, I think part of the reason is because God wanted, wanted to remind us every day that true joy is found in a relationship with him. True joy is found in obedience to him. And that decision is one that we have the opportunity to make each and every day. And so every day, Adam and Eve would walk past that tree and they would say, yes, we're gonna trust God. He's a good God. He knows us, he made us, he's given us so much. We're gonna trust that he, that his way always brings us joy. And we have to understand that for love to be real, there has to be the possibility of not love, right? Because true love can't be coerced. It can't be forced. And so for us to willingly and freely choose to obey God, there has to be the possibility that we're not going to obey God. We have to be able to make the decision, no, I'm going to do things my way. We have to have the possibility of rebellion in order for true love to be real. And so God places that tree in the garden and gives them the opportunity to make that choice every day. Now, I don't know how long they said yes to God, but what we see here in chapter three of Genesis is that things slowly begin to unravel. The, the serpent begins to weave this web of lies and deceit. First, he goes for the direct approach and he says, did God say you can't eat of any of these trees? That just seems so unfair. Like he's put all of these around and then he, then, he, then he says, no, they're all out of reach. Like God doesn't want your happiness. God doesn't have your joy in mind. Why is he withholding all of this from you? And Eve answers the question and she says, no, 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 that's not what God said. God said that we can eat from all of these trees. We just can't eat from the one in the middle of the garden because we'll die. And then the serpent says the lie that to this day we listen to and we believe. He says, you know what? I don't think you can really trust this God. You won't die. Nothing bad will happen if you eat of this fruit. In fact, God knows if you eat of it, you'll know what he knows. And don't you think you would make a better God than he? Don't you think you would be better at making decisions for yourself and choices for yourself than he is, than, than, than God? And so Eve is pondering this question. And by the way, what in the world is going on with Adam right here? He's just standing there passively. He's not saying a word. Like, like God has told him, you protect this garden, you protect this place, you watch over your wife and you protect your family. And, and his mind is somewhere else. Like everything is at stake. And it's like the ultimate squirrel moment. Like, hey, Eve, the squirrel, <laughs> remember when I named that? Like, what is he thinking? And so Eve in this moment becomes the first in a long line of wives who have said, do I have to make every spiritual decision for this family? Like, could I get a little bit of help here? Adam doesn't say a word. His attention is somewhere else. 
And so Eve looks at the fruit and she sees that it's good for food and that it's valuable for gaining wisdom. She believed the lie and she ate of the fruit and she handed it to her husband and he also believed the lie and he ate of the fruit. And in that moment, Adam and Eve rebelled against their God, their maker, their father, and the cosmos just broke. And everything changed. And from then on, every person who has ever said, I'm gonna do things my way, and has taken God off the throne and said, I would be much better sitting there myself, has stepped into that same kind of rebellion and added to the fracturing of the perfect world that God has created. Watch what happens next. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? I don't know if there are any more heartbreaking words in all of the Bible than those words. Before sin entered in, everything was perfect. Perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect relationships in the presence of God. And now all of that has been destroyed. What's happened? Now there's shame. Now they see their nakedness. The serpent was right. Your eyes will be open. And Adam and Eve didn't like what they see, saw, so they ran and they hid. And so the world that God had created and said after every day, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, gets broken and bruised to its core. Now we might be tempted to say, um, so what's the big deal with the fruit? Like, why is that such a big deal? But what we have to, have to understand is the same rebellion in the heart of Adam and Eve that led them to take a bite of the fruit is the same rebellion that has been breaking this world ever since. Everything from an, from a, 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 an angry word spoken to a child to all-out genocide comes from that same kind of rebellion. Every war, every murder, every act of slavery or human trafficking, every word of racism, all of that has come from that same place. It all started there. Now, when I was a kid, I had this pretty naive understanding of what happened here. I had this idea that everything bad in the world, Adam's fault, Eve's fault. So I'd get bit by a mosquito, Eve, or I'd catch poison ivy, Adam. Like if only they hadn't messed things up for every one of us, right? But as I grew a little bit older, I began to understand that their story, that's my story. That I've stood in that same place myself. I've been there and I've listened to the same lies of the enemy and I've made the same decision that they made. Now, what are those lies? The serpent isn't too creative, but he's really, really effective. There's really three that he's been spinning out throughout all of history, and we listen to, and many times we believe. Lie number one is this. You know better than God. God said, don't eat from the one tree. The serpent said, that's not that big of a deal. You can eat from that. And Eve says, I think you're right, and she eats of it, and everything t falls apart from that point. And if we're honest, we know that we reenact that same story every day, it seems like. That every act of rebellion, every sin comes from that lie, I know what's best, my way is best, and that's what's at the heart of it all. God says your greatest joy is 
coming from knowing me, is living in a relationship with me. And we believe that we know best. And so we chased after our careers. We chased after money, after stuff. We look for things that will give us pleasure, little islands of pleasure in our lives. We look for some person maybe to complete us. And instead of, instead of finding our joy in the creator of everything, we, start, we remove him from the throne and we put the things he's created or other people in that place and we go after those things instead. We'll find happiness there, we believe. And so if I'm honest from you, with you, I know that I have stood in that place with that fruit in my hand and I've heard what God said. I know what, his, what he has said to me, what he has said is the, the way of joy. And I hear that and I look at the fruit. There's God's way, there's my way, and I've taken a bite of that fruit. And sometimes I just wipe my mouth and take another bite and smile. Said, boy, wasn't that good. I don't know when it first happened, but there was a time when selfishness turned to greed and I took a bite. There was a time when curiosity turned to lust and I looked around and I ate of that fruit. There was a time when hunger turned to gluttony and I ate and I ate and I ate and I ate. Or when dislike turned to anger and hatred. There was a time when fibs turned into manipulation and deceit. And there was a day when my childish desire to get my own way turned to me removing God from the throne of my life and putting myself there so that I could make my own rules for my own benefit. And maybe that's true of you as well. So that's the first lie. And if our enemy can't get us with lie number one, he comes at us with lie number two. That is that your sin is really no big deal. He he minimized sin. And so the second lie is he comes along and he says, okay, well, maybe something will happen if you eat, but it's not gonna be that bad. In fact, you can probably control the consequences of your sin. You'll be able to handle it. You'll be able to hide it. And so we get really, really good at minimizing our sin, at justifying our sin, at making excuses for ourselves. And so... Uh, God comes and he says, marriage, super important. It's holy. It's a sacred relationship. Don't live as if you're married before you actually get married. And we come along with so many ways to downplay that and justify it. We say, you know, that just seems so old fashioned. Like we're going to get married anyhow, right? Or God wants us to be wise with our money. And if we move in together, we'll save a whole lot of money. And once we're married, God comes and says, that's an exclusive relationship. Your hearts are to be for just one another. You're to belong to one another. You're one flesh. And I wonder how many homes have been wrecked, how many marriages have been destroyed because someone believed the lie that a little flirting isn't just harmless. It's not that big a deal. It doesn't really mean anything. Besides, she's going through a hard time. She just needs someone to listen to her right now, right? And that lie takes us to places we don't want to go. And God says, when you're hurt, trust in me. I'll take care of you. Let me be your defender. But we don't believe that. And so we say to ourselves, no, if, if I don't stand up for myself, nobody, nobody else will. And so we fight our own battles. And who cares about the collateral damage? I'm going to do things my way. Adam and Eve, they thought they would be able to handle the consequences of what they, what they uh, did in the garden. But what they set into motion took them to places they never would have dreamed because they will have two sons. And one son will become jealous of the other son. He'll believe lies of his own. And they will go through the agony and the nightmare of 
of two parents watching one child murder another child and standing there in the garden with the fruit in their hands, they never would have believed that it would have taken them to that place. Sin almost always takes us further than we want to go. It almost always escalates. God tells them in this chapter the outcome of their sin. What are the results of that? And so he says first to the serpent, you're gonna be cursed of all animals, that you're gonna crawl on the ground, that the offspring of this woman is going to crush your head and you're gonna strike out at its heel, but it will ultimately lead to your destruction. And God says to Eve, uh, because of what you've done, you're gonna experience pain in childbirth from now on. And, and, and you're gonna experience relational challenges with your husband. Your desire is gonna be for your husband, but he's gonna rule it over you and it's gonna be just challenging in all kinds of ways. And he comes to Adam and he says, where the ground just produced fruit almost effortlessly, now your work is gonna get really hard. It's gonna be about thorns and thistles and the sweat of your forehead. Work is gonna become challenging. And even though we know these consequences, and even though we've seen them play out in our lives and the lives of other people, sometimes we believe that lie that it's really no big deal and we eat of the fruit ourselves. There's one more lie, and this one is kind of ironic because it's a, it, it almost goes against the first two lies. But if, if the enemy can get us to believe lie number one or lie number two, here's what he says. Now your sin defines you. Now, now that you've fallen, your sin is the most important thing about you. Whereas he, before he was saying, your sin is no big deal, now he's saying, it's the biggest deal. It's the only thing that matters in your life. He comes to us and he whispers those lies that sometimes we agree with. He says, you better take that secret to your grave. Don't ever, ever, ever let anyone know about that thing. And he says, you are your guilt because of what you've done. And you are your shame because of who you are. He says, your past, that defines you now. He says, you know what? In fact, you probably disgust God. And if we don't believe that lie, then we at least believe the lie that, sure, God might love us, but because he has to, but he sure doesn't like us very much. And if, it's, if it was his choice, he would just walk away. And I have to think that some of us have lived in the place of those lies for a long, long time because that last lie is the one that we agree with the most, right? We might never admit my, that I know better than God. We might not ever say, those, say that lie out loud. We might not ever say that sin really doesn't matter, but this last one, it makes all kinds of sense to us, and we agree with that because, after all, God has given us so much, right? And we threw it in his face. Of course he's going to walk away. Of course he just wants to wash his hands of us. And so we bury ourselves, just like Adam and Eve, who took fig leaves to try to, to try to cover their nakedness. We look around and any fig leaf will do. We bury ourselves in our work, in our school, in our family. We fill our schedules with so many things. We spend hours binge watching Netflix or we spend days at the gym practically. Anything to cover our guilt and our shame and help us forget about it for just a little while, we'll grab those fig leaves. But what happens in the story is a surprising turn. And it's in this moment that God does something right after some of the hardest words, right after the most sad story, comes some of the most tender words in all of the Bible. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. 
You see, Adam and sin tried to, Adam and Eve tried to do for themselves what, they tried to fix their problem. But it wasn't just their problem. It was also God's problem. Because just like a parent whose heart breaks when they see their child make bad decisions and make a wreck of their life, he comes after them. He doesn't just leave them in the garden, but he pursues them. He comes after them. He calls out to them. He finds them. And he does for them what they're unable to do for themselves. And that's the story that gets repeated over and over and over again throughout the whole rest of the the Old Testament. The 926 chapters that come after this is the story that gets repeated over and over and over again. God called a people for himself. And he said, I'm going to show my goodness to you so that you can show my goodness to the rest of the world. And sometimes those people got it right but most of the time they got it really wrong. Most of the time they chased after other gods. Most of the time they took advantage of other people. Most of the time they lived with great injustice, but God always came after them. He said, I'm like a parent who will never give up. He said, I'm like a husband who has an unfaithful wife that I love that wife and I would die for that wife. And he pursues that wife and he calls her back into a relationship to himself. And that is the story of the Old Testament. And he promised through that whole time, one day a savior is gonna come into the world that's gonna take what happened in the garden and turn it back upside down and make what was broken right again. He's gonna fix it and he's gonna heal it and he's gonna bring us back into a relationship together. One day the king of the universe is gonna step down from the throne of heaven, down into the mess and the brokenness of this world. And he's gonna say, I am the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life. And he doesn't say that because he's looking around going, nope, you're not the way. Nope, that's not the truth. Nope, that's not the life. Wrong, 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 wrong. That's not his heart at all. What he's communicating is, don't you understand? (laughs) I'm the only one who's coming after you. I'm the only one who's coming to rescue you and bring you back into a relationship with the God who loves you. And so what started at the base of one tree is gonna take us to another tree and the king of heaven is gonna climb up onto that tree and on that tree, the head of the serpent is gonna get crushed. And on that tree, the king is gonna take on himself all of the effects of our rebellion. And on that tree, he's gonna take our filthy rags and he's gonna clothe us in garments of white. And a story that got really messy and really ugly and really sad is gonna get really, really good. In fact, becomes the best story ever. And that's what we're going to look at next week. Let's pray. Father, I am so glad you did not leave us alone in that garden. God, I'm so glad that you did not leave us alone in our sin. Because we've tried. We've tried to make up for it. We've tried to make things right. And nothing works. And so, God, I thank you that you did for us what we could never do for ourselves, that you came after us. God, that you always come after us. Thank you for sending your son, the king of all of heaven, into this world to rescue us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray right now. Amen.